This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Snapchat, many of you will know, some of you will know, many, I don't know, will know what Snapchat is. It is a program you use on your iPhone, maybe on your other smartphones, I guess. And originally it was designed, as I understand it, and if this was not the sole purpose or the intended purpose, it's what it was really for. It's a program where you can take a picture and send it to somebody and they can look at it. But after they look at it within a prescribed period of time, so let's say 10 seconds, that picture goes away. It just vanishes. And a lot of people initially were using it to send like dirty pictures to other people because they couldn't keep it. There was no record that they knew of. You could send a picture to your husband, your wife, to whomever of you being dirty and then boom, they saw it and oh, there it was gone. Well, things have changed over that time. People are using it for more things and more upright things, if you want to use that term. But about a week ago, it debuted on the New York Stock Exchange uh, for an initial public offering. And I was absolutely blown away. No idea about this. It debuted. When it went on sale, people purchased it. It's worth $30 billion, with a B, $30 billion. And I, for the life of me, can't understand this because I don't understand how anyone makes any money off this. And therefore, what is the value? Well, the only person we could possibly turn to to try and answer this question question, which I don't know if there is an answer for, Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business, who um, I, I'm sure never used Snapchat for its nefarious purposes, but uh, but knows the the program anyway. Uh, Marvin, thanks for doing this tonight. My, my pleasure, and, and I bet you all those people at Nerdstock know all about Snapchat. I guarantee you they all do, but I bet you that none of them can explain why it's worth $30 billion. Why is it worth that much money? Well, if you don't mind, I'd just like to start slightly someplace else and then come back to that. So to your listeners, you mentioned the early days. Let's call that Snapchat 1.0. Its initial invention was exactly what you talked about. It, you would send a picture to someone, and 10 seconds later it would disappear. And the genesis of that, of course, was a fellow who ran for New York City mayor, a fellow by the name of Anthony Weiner, who got caught <laughs> sending pictures of his Weiner to other people. And, of course, it brought down his career. It you know, turfed him out of the House of Representatives. It flared up again during the Merrillity campaign. And so this person sitting in a classroom, and I don't want to make you feel old here, Scott, but Snapchat debuted 1.0 in the year 2011, five and a half years ago. And he went to his class and he proposed this. And the class said, well, yeah, you know, I could see if I was sending these dirty pictures how I'd want them to disappear. But, you know, does that have any long-term value? But that's how the app started. And then pretty soon uh, it became more than that. People said, well, some pictures I have, I don't want them to disappear. I'd like to store them, kind of like the way we store them on Facebook. And so Snapchat said, okay, we'll create two different kinds. There will be the temporary picture. And then you can establish a more long-term chronology of pictures. You can build stories and this sort of a thing. But Snapchat really took off about three years ago when they introduced something called a filter. And a filter goes like this. I take a picture of you, and it's a lovely, wonderful picture, but people said, gosh, I have so many regular photos of you. So what they did was we'll call it augmented reality. I could flip a little switch, and now I'm going to take a picture of you where you're a bunny rabbit. And suddenly your ears are replaced with bunny ears. Of course. Your eyes are made bigger and doe-like. And people love this idea. How, how could we have gone through society and civilization without for so long? Of course. You know, and imagine how the police, you know, just a standard mugshot. Now we can make you a bunny <laughs> rabbit or a deer or, or have little whiskers. And suddenly people couldn't get enough of this. And, and so people have been using Snapchat right, left, and center, not unlike other 
uh, technology companies, though, it costs a lot of money to do all of this. Already, Snapchat has burned through $1.8 billion of startup capital, and they needed some more. So last week, you're absolutely correct, they did an initial public offering of the stock. Now, they didn't sell all of the stock. In fact, right now, there's roughly $1.2 billion, with a B, billion shares of the stock. Last week, they sold around, oh, I think 200 million of the shares. Um, and uh, they priced them. They priced them. They were debating what they'd price them at, $16, $18. They, they debuted around $18, and on that day that they debuted, they were all sold, all bought up, and the company got $3.5 billion in the transaction. Since then, that was last Wednesday, since then the stock has gone up. Today it closed at around $22.5. Now if you take the $22.5 and multiply it by the $1.2 billion, billion shares, you get a valuation today not of $25 billion, not even of $30 billion, but it's now approaching $35 billion. Now, your question is correct. Well, how, how do we get this? Again, let me show you how this world has changed. Last year, 2016, Snapchat did not make any money. In fact, it lost $515 million. In 2015, it lost $373 million. So its losses went up by 50%. My gosh, it's losing more money, and yet it's worth more. Let me give you another statistic you might find interesting. It generates revenue. How does it generate revenue? Well, it's collaborated with various Hollywood people to show uh, short videos, usually of movies that are coming up, or the filters that I have. The filters could be themed. They could be filters from Frozen, or they could be film, uh, filters from Moana, that animated film. Last year, the company did $400 million in revenue. Wait a minute. It lost 515 it only took in $400 million revenue. That means it has a billion dollars in expenses. It's nowhere near breaking even. Now, the revenue side was better. The year before, it only made about $60, $70 million in revenue. So in just a few years, look how fast it's grown up. We think this year, we think this year, its revenue might get closer to a billion dollars, but the expenses are still there. It's quite possible it still won't make any money, won't be profitable this year. So again, how do we get this valuation? The only thing I can try to explain to you with, with the stock market in general is that the value of a stock does not represent the status of the company today, but represents what we think will be the future earnings potential of this stock. And what people are attracted to are these hundreds of millions of people who are flocking to this site. Maybe they'll buy more, maybe they'll generate more revenue, and they'll eventually become a Facebook Again, to give you a sense of this, just how it's different, today Facebook has 1.2 billion users a month who use the software. Snapchat only has roughly 160 million users. It's one-tenth the size of all of this. Um, so we're just not quite sure if its future is as rosy as it is. Most people like me, academics, feel that this is well overpriced. The company isn't worth anything like this. But people get so enamored with these technology stocks that they rush in. Well, didn't we have this e-boom and then e-bust a decade or decade and a half ago? Didn't we learn anything from that when everyone bought these e-companies and they all went and then everyone lost money and we said, oh, we'll never do that again. Yeah. And we're doing the, they're saying now that Facebook at some point down the road is going to be worth a trillion, that's with a TR, trillion dollars. 
The, and, and I Facebook has actually lasted. So right. So Facebook has some legs. We can believe maybe that Facebook will maybe get there because it's shown that it can hang around. But we saw this happen once before, and it was a horrible disaster. Well, well, not only that, what we know in these technology stocks is sometimes what goes up can come back down. Before Facebook, there was a wonderful product called MySpace. Yes. And people had their special pages in MySpace. And at one time, MySpace was valued for tens of billions of dollars. How has the mighty fallen? Do you know who owns MySpace today? This should be one of your trivia questions. Uh, probably some guy who's on a street corner lying on a piece of cardboard. Oh, God bless you. No, a fellow you might know by the name of Justin Timberlake. Really? And he bought MySpace for, now wait for it, $9 million. <laughs> That's what he bought it for a few years ago. And his plan was, and I'm not sure how well it's going for him, was he wanted to turn MySpace into a more music-oriented type site and the fact that we're not talking about it and there's been no IPO suggests that Justin hasn't been able to work any great magic on it. But that's how fast it went up and it came down. Another one that came down was a company that was owned by Twitter. Twitter, of course, you know, as the, as the small communications, 140 characters. And, and you would think, in fact, with the new president and how much he likes to tweet, that it's been good for the company. But they bought a company called Vine. Now, Vine was important mm-hmm. because there you posted short videos. How short? No more than 10 seconds of video. Uh, And boy, when it was uh, launched back in 2010, people said, ha-ha, logical extension for Twitter, short communications. This is going to catch on. Who doesn't like those little short cat videos or little (laughs) short videos of people doing crazy things in their backyard? Well, at its peak. So they bought Vine. Vine was created by somebody. Twitter bought it for $30 million. At its peak, it was worth nearly $3 billion. And last year, 2016, it closed. They just couldn't make it work. And in fact, Vine's people went to Snapchat because Snapchat not only did pictures, but then they started having videos that you could post. Again, initially short, dirty videos you could post that would disappear, and then eventually real videos that you could archive. So I just, I'm not sure. So I like to describe these technologies as the wild, wild west, not the world wide web, but the wild, wild west. The traditional rules of business don't seem to apply here. You get people rushing in more with emotion than with good sense. They drive prices up. And so, frankly, I don't recommend people buy these stocks. I don't touch them with a 10-foot pole. You're really just buying vapor. And I'm not exactly. sure what the long-term value of vapor is. Exactly. No, exactly. And the other part about this that I find so fascinating, and Marvin, I mean, the thing about this that really strikes me is that if you're having $30 billion of valuation, there are some rich and some smart people who are investing money in this. And I just, I, I shake my head because the other thing about this, we have seen that the driving force right now, at least the main users of Snapchat and many of these other services are millennials who can be very fickle with their tastes in technology. And if you are on Snapchat today by a month from now, they could say, oh, that is so uncool. You don't actually still use Snapchat, do you? And it's dead. Well, and your your concern is quite valid. So uh, the, now that the company is publicly traded, remember that was a key thing. The initial public offering made the company publicly traded. Now, rather than being private, being public, they've got to disclose information. So we now have a peek behind the curtains of this company. And one of the things when we look at this number of users a month, the number of new users per month is starting to slow down. So rather than going from one point. Uh, six million, one point, excuse me, 160 million users to 200 to 300 to 400 to 500, and boy, it's just going to go bang. In fact, from one quarter to the next, the number of people joining are going down. We think that maybe Snapchat is going to tap out 
at far less than a billion viewers, more like 200, 250 million users. And at that point, if the volume slows down, will the valuation fall back? But again, to give you a sense of how crazy this is, just because of last week, this is now considered a Fortune 500 company. Where among the Fortune 500 company is, it's number 122. It's bigger than John Deere, the company that's been manufacturing tractors for over 100 years. It's bigger than uh, some, other, some of the other smaller car companies out there. It's bigger than other kind of manufacturing interests, and yet it doesn't make anything. It doesn't do anything. It is really just an entertainment company. Now, I'm not saying this because I'm some old crotchety guy. I can understand the, the intangible value of some of these things. My students, for instance, tell me they can't live without Facebook, and yet I quiz them and said, if Facebook charged you $5 a month, not a lot, a lot less than the cable company charges me for cable, would you buy it? Oh, well, no, at $5, I could live without Facebook. So that's what worries me. Are those users really dedicated? Are they dedicated for now? And if this company needed cash and started charging, would people pay for it? That, to me, is always the key about the value of a service. It, it just seems, again, going back and looking, and you, the perfect example you talk about with MySpace or ICQ is another one that was out there for a while. There's others that no lessons were learned. At least that's how it appears to me. No lessons were learned, and a lot of money was lost. A lot of, a lot of people lost an awful lot of dough, and you wait a few years and then throw the same emperor's new clothes at them, and they buy it again. Although the feeling often is that because this could blossom into something we don't understand, could. Snapchat, we'll call it now 4.0, is a lot different than Snapchat 1.0. God knows where the engineers and the patents and what have you might take this company. There are people who simply buy into it just like they buy into a horse race and say one of these horses is going to score well. All right. The way I get around this is put my money on five of them. If four of them drop dead, I've still got a horse in the race. That's the gamble they're taking. Or you could actually buy a real horse. You could buy something that exists. And then at least, you know, for me, at least, I mean, I'm looking at it saying, I'd rather have something that I can at least believe. As you say, you describe this as a vapor. I agree. I understand that Facebook has been very successful. This, and we got to go, but the guy who is behind Snapchat is a 26-year-old guy. He is now worth more money than Donald Trump. Last year, the company spent nearly $2 million in protection on him alone because Snapchat has led to death threats. They're spending that much money just on protection bodyguards for this guy. Well, you know, everybody likes to look like a bunny rabbit now and then. So, yeah, you know, right. good, good that it's out there. Uh, Marvin Ryder, always appreciate your, insight, in, appreciate your insight. Thanks for doing this tonight. Anytime, Scott. I, don't, I simply do not understand. And, and I mean, not, not that Marvin didn't do a great job explaining it. He did. But I simply don't understand how, and some of you maybe don't use Snapchat. Some of you maybe have no idea what we're talking about with Snapchat. Uh, Many, 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 most of you probably do. But this is something that seems to me that Snapchat, unlike Twitter, Twitter has become basically an essential service. Whether you use it or not, for many people, Twitter is an essential service now. Facebook is close to for a lot of people, an essential service. Snapchat is a toy. At least that's how I perceive it. And so it's one thing to say, you know, I really need to have Twitter to keep up on the daily news or to keep up on breaking news or to keep up on this or that. Snapchat to me is like buying a can of pop. It's a nice treat. Once in a while you go on, you go, oh, that was fun. To think that it's worth $30 billion, $30 billion is 
I just don't get it. I just don't get it. I don't get who's buying this. And this is not the last one of these. We will have new startup e-companies, things that are apps on your phone. We will have more and more and more and more and more of these. And everyone will get very excited about it. And half of them, I don't know if it'll be this one, but half of them will end up going out of business just like happened before. And everyone will say, well, we'll never buy that stuff again. That was a lesson learned. And then they'll buy it a month or a year or two years later when the next one comes along. Staggering. I, I, I don't understand it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. You recall back in, I think it was 2009. 2009 was the culmination of the efforts for Hamilton to get an NHL team. Now, we're not starting into the whole, hey, is Hamilton going to get an NHL team discussion again? We're not going down that road. That's not happening for a long, long time, if ever. If ever. Probably never. But certainly not in the near future. So we're going to leave that alone. But 2009, you'll recall Jim Balsillie was in court with Judge, what was his name? Reginald T. Baum, something like that, uh, in Phoenix, trying to get the Arizona slash Phoenix Coyotes and move them back here to First Ontario Center, which was at that time still called Cops Coliseum. And we were going to have an NHL team back then, but the NHL fought it. And the reason the NHL fought it is because they wanted their team to stay in Arizona. Arizona was a great hockey market, an up-and-coming hockey market, a place where they wanted to grow the game. Well, this week, Gary Bettman, in a letter to the folks in Arizona, has said that The Coyotes cannot and will not remain in Glendale. The arena doesn't work. They want a big new arena. They want tax breaks. They want out of the lease. They want all that kind of stuff. What a shocker, huh? What a shocker. Who could have possibly seen the NHL not working in the middle of the desert? And now, now brace yourself. Remember what's starting next year? The Las Vegas team. Another hockey team in the middle of the desert. Man, this league makes good decisions sometimes. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH joins me now. Sir, how are you? Uh, you know, we talk about all this disappointment. Now I'm disappointed because of Cardinal Newman, who just lost their bronze medal game in the offset. Of the oh, boys. they did. In basketball? Boys yeah, basketball? Lost at 53-52. Ouch. Uh, allowed a, a last-second last three to tie it and force overtime, and then a sit with seven seconds left, uh, the Puma, the Pine Ridge Pumas from Pickering. Uh, That's a lot game. of peas. Yeah, a lot of peas there. They popped its peas, but uh, yeah, they they end up winning uh, winning the game. So a, a real close one there, and uh, but good stuff for the Hamilton uh, basketball power. The hockey power, however, uh, we never were getting the hockey team. We know that Gary Bettman was never going to let it come here. But Bubba, I just simply have never been able to understand why the league has been so ab- adamant, absolutely adamant, that a team in Cal in uh, in Arizona. Had to work. Now, I know part of it was just fighting off Jim Balsley. I get that. But man, oh man, this just, this looks so bad on the league to have gone through this fight just a few years ago and now say, yeah, you know what, what we said, it's not going to work down there with its current sit up, setup. You know, I, I smell two bad apples here, and, and I agree with you that the National Hockey League kind of has egg on their face because they've really worked hard to try and make uh, this work. And, I mean, obviously there has been some effect of hockey in the National Hockey League in Arizona. I mean, you need to only look at the Toronto Maple Leafs and one Austin Matthews as a, as a prodigy to represent that, uh, that there is increased interest in the sport in that state. Um, how much of it? 
translates into you know selling seats we're not quite sure because the National Hockey League would contend that they've never had the team located where in the in the proper place I mean they've gone through two ranks now I mean the first place where it was located just didn't make sense um, so you know Gary Bettman is throwing out the, the, the threats right now to the, to the legislature okay but they they put the team down there knowing it was not in a place they really wanted and then they they allowed it to move to Glendale uh, and now they want it to move again. I mean, how much money do you actually want to slurp out of the Arizona taxpayers' pockets to support an NHL team that may or may not ever work down there? If I was a taxpayer, honestly, Bubba, they've built this Glendale Arena. They've signed this huge lease. If I'm a taxpayer, I am telling them, first train out of town, take your team, be gone. I've had enough of you guys. All you want is more and more and more of our money. And, and you're right, and, and that's, that's the second side of it, because the Arizona legislature has, uh, has sort of had that attitude, especially in the last couple of years, because let's be honest, maybe this team, even though they did give it a go for a couple of years, there was a real rising of, uh, of division between the National Hockey League and the Arizona government a couple of years ago, but they did agree to sign a short-term deal, keep the team, um, you know, they made some provisions, improved the stadium uh, at, at the in Glendale, but it was never supposed to be a long-term solution for either side. And I think the Arizona people are pretty much said exactly what you said there. We're not in the mood to finance a new rink, which would probably, under the National Hockey League, they would probably want it to be a hockey-only arena, which is going to be a disaster in that area because there's no person in that place other than the probably 5,000 season ticket holders that would support the money to be spent to, to put up a new arena there. That's a big, that's a major league problem there. Well, uh, I'm reading this that says that um, the city, Glendale, still owes $145 million on the rink. So you've got a, a, a town that you negotiated with to make this thing happen, and now you want to leave them without a tenant still holding the tab for $145 million. That That's, that's, how do you even think to do that? I mean, I know you're trying to keep your business operating, but how do you possibly turn to the taxpayers and say, you know what? Yeah, it's only 145 million bucks. Suck it up, people. Come on. That that's well, that's insane. In today's troubled times, and you know, and I hate to say with Trump and everything, and everyone, you know, looking at their pocketbooks, but I, I just don't see it happening, Scott. And I, and I think this team, this franchise, probably is in is in a lot of trouble there. Where it would move to, I'm not quite sure. I know there's a lot. There's a rink already and waiting in Quebec City. Yeah, never. The National Hockey League has certainly shown that that's that is an option, but it's not their first option. And they, I mean, you have cities like Seattle that are looking to are looking at the National Hockey League and the NBA at making a return. Uh, but there's no, uh, there's not a new uh, facility there yet. There is th- talks about building one there, but it's not complete yet. So. Uh, I think the NHL is kind of stuck here, and uh, this team, and they've wanted it to work. It's worked a little bit, but I don't think to the success that they might have thought that it could have been. I think they thought they had a good model of growing the sport like it has been, because to be honest, and despite what people believe, hockey has been very successful in San Jose. Los Angeles Kings do a nice job, and the Anaheim Ducks has been a successful franchise winning a couple of Stanley Cups, winning a Stanley Cup. But they can't seem to get that model working in the state of Arizona and the southern United States. Do you, though, when you look at this, do you not look at what's happening here and 
suddenly have some cold sweats for the fact that they're starting another desert franchise in Las Vegas? See, I think I think Phoenix, Glendale, had a far greater chance of success than Las Vegas does. Because I don't see, other than the people who will fly down from Toronto for a Leaf game or something and make a weekend of it, maybe, maybe they can fill the rink with those people week after week after week who are just going to come down, watch a game, gamble for a bit, and fly home. Maybe that's the, the model for success. But as far as Las Vegas, Las Vegans, Las Vegans, what are they? What is a person from Las Vegas? <laughs> they can't be a Las Vegan. That's, that, that just means they don't eat any meat. Um, Desert people. Desert, yeah. But if you're relying only on the locals, I don't see how that possibly works in that city. It's got to be about people coming down there. And then you're relying, your whole fan base, your whole arena is going to be cheering for the opposing team. Um, I, 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 I differ there, Scott. I think that the Las Vegas model is a better idea because that's, a, that's an area that is now shown because of development um, that it's more than just a tourist city. So you obviously have the millions of tourists that go through that, 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 that entire vicinity, that entire region. So you're looking at a lot of transplanted Canadians, Americans that like hockey, and it's an event city as well, too. So going to a game might be an event. You've got a lot of very, very wealthy people that you know help put together that whole franchise. Well, wealthy and when they arrive. That, and on top of that, too, you're looking at a community now that is well... I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the unspoken part about Las Vegas, that there is over a million people now that live in that city. So I think your reach is pretty good. I think it's much better than Arizona or Phoenix, sorry. Um, so I, I, I and, and just for the fact that, you know what, it, they've gone all out. It is the first pro franchise in there. I'm telling you, I believe that the NBA and maybe even Major League Baseball will be looking. And the NFL. And, and the NFL. And they'll be looking at this. And I believe that the, 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 the NHL maybe got the jump on everyone else and getting a team here. Because the optics were always about you didn't want to put a pro sports team where there's a tremendous amount of gambling. Now, the NBA has been first to make this move and that they are okay with gambling. And I think the other sports like the NFL, obviously, which is all kinds of gambling, and even the National Hockey League are beginning to soften their stance on the thoughts of uh, people gambling on their sports. I just, I got to tell you, I, the the idea that this is going to be a wildly successful thing, I, I, just, I just don't see it. I really don't see in Las Vegas, especially... If the NFL or if the NBA come to town, the NHL can hold its own, maybe hold its own until there's competition with another pro sports team. But once that comes, you are but looking there's, at there's a second. A over there, Scott. I mean, the NFL, I mean, it, there's not a lot of crossover there in terms of the sports. I mean, maybe for two months. Um, I would be more concerned about basketball than, than... That's what I said. NBA or NFL come down there, and that sucks up all the oxygen in the room, and suddenly the NHL is the ticket you get from the casino if the NBA and NFL tickets are gone. Right. Yeah, here, here, we, yeah, we'll give you free tickets to the game. Oh, I'm sorry, the, uh, you know, the Lakers game, oh, we've given those away already, but we've got some nice tickets to go see the Columbus Blue Jackets. But even if t- hotels are giving, giving away tickets, those are sold tickets. Oh, yeah. So... Well, okay, so you can make a case that from a business perspective, as I say, it may be able to hold its own if the casinos are buying the tickets, but if the building is constantly empty, you still got a problem. You've got a problem because it's a visual thing. If you look all the time and you see an arena is empty, I don't want to go to the arena. Well, of course. And, and so there's no buzz. There's no nothing around it. Look, it's it. I, I look at. I'm going back to the Glendale thing for a second. I just look at this and I think this looks so ridiculous. 
This is so ridiculous that the NHL fought tooth and nail, went to the wall to argue that hockey in California was essential and was going to work and was perfect and was great and it was on its way up and on and on and on. And now we see, yeah, you know what? That was that was never going to happen. And they don't want to go to Quebec City because... If the day ever comes that they go to that brand new building in Quebec City, that's a hockey market. They want to sell a franchise fee. They want to get an expansion fee and squeeze 500 or 600 million dollars out of those owners because they're hockey people. Where so they may have and they want to be in the west. So they may have to go to Seattle, find an owner, find a rink. It, it, it's 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 when was the last time the NHL, Bubba, truly, the NHL looked at itself and said, everybody is healthy. We are just cruising along now, and everybody in this league is doing well. When was the last time? Well, they're, you know, and, and they're, you're talking about, you know, even like a rally in uh, with the Carolina Hurricanes. I mean, they have proven that when they're a winning team, that the, they seem to do well at the gate. And, you know, you could say a lot of that for a lot of these southern markets, that when teams are doing well, um, they're doing okay. You've seen an increase with the Florida Panthers because the last couple of years they've they've done well. They've competed at the postseason. They've got a Yarmer Yager. They've got sort of a marquee player to, to, to advertise and push the team. But uh, there, there is constant sort of you know, confusion in terms of which teams. I mean, and Dallas Stars have not been a – Dallas Stars actually have been a good franchise since moving to Minnesota, but in the last couple of years, things have been kind of lean there. They're lucky they have very, very deep owners with deep pockets there because attendance-wise, they're struggling there too. Just before I let you go, we just got a minute or two left here. Um, let's switch to another southern place, another southern climb, but a completely different sport. Um I know that everybody says that spring training means nothing in Major League Baseball, but the fact that the Blue Jays are in last in the entire Major Leagues in the spring training standings, now again, it is what it is, does that ca- and, the, and that the pitching is getting beat up right now, does that cause any concern at all for fans? Absolutely none. I mean, yeah, Matt Latos got taken apart. Jay Happ struggled against Team Canada yesterday. <laughs> You know, but you know what? I, I'm not really concerned. I mean, I, every time I try to become concerned about a spring training record, I'm always proven wrong. So I think history has. It, it, I'm going to lean on the side of history that the, the spring training. You've got you've got players playing two innings. Um, there, I, what I would be concerned about is even though a lot of players have been signed on that Blue Jays roster, I'm concerned about the amount of uh, true. Um, major league depth at a number of positions for the Blue Jays. I still think that, I mean, who's going to be the left fielder? Do you know? Nope. I mean, that, so there's an issue there. Who's I mean, going to be the they, second baseman? Uh, well, uh, Brett Laurie? Maybe. I mean, yeah. which, which, I, which I believe is a viable option. I, I mean, I think that's a pretty decent option until Devin Travis comes back. But the problem is, if Devin Travis does come back, how long does he hang around for? You have to believe that at some point, Troy Tulowitzki, due to his age, will end up on the, desi- on the DL. At some point, he will, for a short time. Who's going to play that position? Yeah, there's um, a lot of them. There's a lot of them. And here's the question I have. We've got to go. But here's the thing that I always wonder about. You, and I agree with you, that you don't look at the standings for spring training. You don't look at the pitchers. Everyone says, oh, it's just spring training. Nobody cares. And we poo-poo the poor performances in spring training. And yet... And yet, Jose Bautista right now is ripping the hide off the ball, and all I'm hearing and reading is, look how great Jose <laughs> Bautista looks. Well, if we have to ignore the performances that are bad, we can't then pick and choose the performances that are good and say, look how great he's going to be. If it's meaningless, it's meaningless. 
my only rebuttal to that, Scott, is that at least we're seeing him healthy. Yes. And I think, I mean, because he, I don't think there was for a moment that he, after the, the, the first half of the season, that uh, Jose Batista was healthy. I think there was just a number of things he was dealing with in terms of injuries and nicks and knacks on his body, but he looks healthy. And may I say, because the, the, the strength of Jose Batista is the chip that he carries on his shoulder. And after what happened with the fact that he was, needed to sign that one year deal, I think he's a guy that right now is playing with a chip on his shoulder, and I think that's a good thing for the Blue Jays. Well, he looks healthy, and i got to tell you, his beard is in mid-season form already. That guy has got a Brillo pad on his face right now. It is thick and robust. It's so dark. If I grew a beard for my whole life, from the time I could start growing a beard, I couldn't catch up to what he can do between 5 p.m. and midnight. (laughs) Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Always appreciate having you on. Thanks for doing this. Uh, Thanks for having me, Scott. Great time. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Today is the International Women's Day. And there was an announcement that came out first thing this morning. I got a press release when I woke up basically this morning from the Canadian Association for the Advancement of Women in Sport and Physical Activity, announcing their list of most influential women. And there was a familiar name on that list. She is the head coach of the University of Saskatchewan that is heading to nationals again this weekend, but is the defending national champion. She, and that's the, I don't know how many times they've been to nationals now, every year. She is the coach of Team Canada, which was at the Olympics and which has been the most successful Team Canada women's basketball in history. And best of all, she's from Dundas and is a McMaster grad. Lisa Tomitis joins us. Lisa, how are you? I'm good, Scott. How are you? Excellent. Congratulations. Um, This is the second time, third time you've been on this list? Yeah, second time, I believe. It's got to be getting exhausting carrying around this majestic mantle of power and influence everywhere you go now. (laughs) Yeah, you're a funny guy. Um, (laughs) uh, No, not at all. I mean, it's it's certainly a very nice honor. I mean, for them to to have me on that list with all these other amazing women. So, but it, but it is uh, it, it does. Honored. But Lisa, it does have to be kind of cool though, and kind of a, an a, really a, a nice thing, an important thing for you. I'm guessing even that that people do, and and rightly so, consider you influential and consider you successful and consider you a leader. That has to be something that you feel good about. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's always nice to be recognized for for stuff that you do. Um, at the end of, at the end of the day, I'm just a basketball coach, though, really. And uh, you know, I'm in a unique situation where I can have some influence over some young um, student athletes, and and hopefully, it's a positive influence. So, it, I mean, it sounds like trying to get you to admit that that you do have influence and do have some power. I'm going to have to work at you to try and get you to, to admit this because it, it really is true. If you're the coach of Canada's Olympic team, there's only one of you. And, and you, with what you guys did over the with the Olympics and the world championships and the qualifying, you've done some amazing things over the last few years. Well, I think the entire organization of Canada basketball has done some great things. And, uh, you know, I'm certainly not just the only person that's involved with that Um, and the unique thing and the amazing thing too is that uh, a lot of the people within Canada basketball are amazing women so you know Michelle O'Keefe Denise Denyard they've done wonderful things with our women's program and so again I'm just one of a number of people they're actually the ones behind the scenes that do a lot more of the grunt work and I'm the one that gets to you know get a lot of the accolades because I'm the one seen as the head coach but um, there's a lot of people that are involved with this for sure. Who were the 
Lisa Tomituses that you looked up to when you were young in sports and you were working your way up? Who were the coaches or other female athletes or celebrity stars, female? Who were the people that you really were looking at and thinking, that's what I want to be like when I'm growing up? You know, it was I was very fortunate because I had strong women in my life right from the get-go, um, strong women in sport. I mean, I was, again, very fortunate. I, I think there's not many people and not many women that have the same um, experiences that I've been fortunate enough to have, and that is, you know, I had female coaches early on, and it's surprising how many young women do not have a female coach early on in their developing years. Um, you know, I had female coaches all the way through high school and university. Um, an athletic director at McMaster that was um, a woman, Tris Quigley, who was also on the list. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, so those role models were, were you know, front and center from a very early age and ones in leadership positions in sports. So, again, you had those role models right right there in front of you, right um, all the way along, which, again, I think is a very unique experience. Is it as unique now, do you think, though? Because I, I agree with you, back then, at that time, there would not have been as many women in those positions. Do you think it's changed considerably? I mean, you're not old by any stretch, but it does seem like a long time ago. <laughs> it does. No, but um, I mean, those days when there were not many women who yeah. were in those positions. Oh, for sure. I mean, I remember when Trez was the first eight, first female AD, I believe, in Canada. So, um, and that was not that long ago, like you said. So, I certainly hope it's it's changing in that direction. I certainly hope that that's not a unique situation anymore. That young girls do get a lot of female role models growing up in sport. Um, so, yeah. I mean, like I said, it's just it's so important because if you if you can't see or have those role models right in front of you, it's not something that you're going to aspire to do. And then it's the uh, you know that's a cyclical thing that. Continues to occur if you don't see them in front, you don't see that as a viable option as a as a career path or what have you. I'm gonna. Tr- I want to ask you something, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to word this properly, and I don't want it to be insulting uh, in any way. But is part of your job when you're coaching Team Canada, when you're coaching a university, a top university program, is part of your job to also make your sport interesting and attractive and appealing to male? viewers as well and male fans as well because obviously you're going to do that with the girls who are watching the young girls and the women but if you get both genders in it now you've got a family that can watch now you've got people who will come out and be be interested and it's not just a segmented part of the population it's the whole sports population is that important or is that really you know as long as we get the girls involved then we're, we're good there i think that's just a part of the awareness you know when women are you know profiled in the media when they're put on tv when our sport is on tv it's not something you have to work at to get fans you know um guys will like what they see in terms of the product that's out there and um i don't think it's something you have to really make a conscious effort like oh geez we've got to get guys that come watch women's basketball i think it's when it's out there and when there's an appreciation for it, guys are going to watch. I mean, we just played our Canada West Championship in front of over 2,000 people. Hmm. And I can tell you, it's not all women that are there. It's a lot of guys. We have guys that are our practice squad. And those are some of our biggest fans. And I think, again, when they come out and they practice against us day in and day out, they have an appreciation for what we're doing and, and for our sport and the, the unique way or, or the way that we play it a little bit differently than guys. And uh, so we have a ton of male fans in Saskatoon, I think, you know, it's spreading across the country and it's just, it, it takes exposure. It takes being able to be on TV, to be able to be shown in the media. And, uh, um, and that's, I think the, the starting point right there. 
Is it sexist to say that probably though more than with some men's sports, you have to prove something when those people come out to get them to buy in that, that there may be some skepticism when they first come, but once they see that you can play at a high level, they're willing to buy in. Um, I think that's just a bias that they come with and okay. they're able to get rid of that once they, once they see the product on the floor. I don't think it's something that women have to go out and prove at all. I think it's just, again, a bias that's inherent that, if you're not exposed to it, if you haven't seen a, a women's basketball game, you just don't know. And so it's more ignorance as opposed to anything else, in my opinion. So this list comes out and you're on it and it does put you in an interesting position because you, I'm assuming, and I, I'm assuming this happened the first time you were on the list, it probably opened some doors for you to speak to some people and to have other opportunities. And I was reading this thing from the CNN website uh, today, by the age of 14, Girls drop out of sports at twice the rate of boys, according to the Women's Sports Foundation. And by age 17, most girls have gone through puberty. More than half will have quit sports altogether. Yeah. That's, a, that's, that's a huge problem when you are someone who is trying to build and maintain and grow women's sports to get girls to continue to play. And I'm not entirely sure I know exactly, maybe, yeah. I don't know if you do either, why that is. But that's got to be a big obstacle to overcome. It's funny. Um, actually, one of my former players is a PhD at the University of Alberta, and part of her thesis and part of her research is on why why girls drop out of sport and the whole process of getting cut from a team and what that does to young women. And, you know, girls and young women play sport, you know, sometimes for different reasons than boys. And, and when they're excluded, they're not as resilient to come back and try out again. And... Um, a lot of the reason for their participation is the social the social aspect as opposed to just the competitive one and really they play for and they play for the more of the enjoyment as opposed to the competitive aspect and so you know again i think that's part of the whole impact of having women in leadership positions in sport and women as coaches and having that awareness and understanding um behind the motivation for for girls playing and so, yes, it is a big problem, not just in sport, but also in physical activity and the impact it has on our healthcare system down the road. Um, so I think a lot more needs to be done to understand, you know, how we can keep young girls involved in sport for a longer period of time. And then certainly at a at more of an elite level, um, it, it does us some good if we have, uh, you know, a larger base to, to draw from and more women that are playing sport for a longer period of time and at higher levels for longer periods of time. So... Um, it is definitely an issue, and it, it's one that um, I think is being brought more to the forefront these days. Very directly tied into you. How much does it help when you have the kind of success that your team has had? And I mean, uh, I, I've talked to Kia Nurse a number of times. She plays for you on the national team, a Hamilton girl. I mean, it's she's yeah. had unbelievable success at University of Connecticut. And when she comes home and now walks into a gym... And there are young girls who are looking up to her. They're, like their eyes are gigantic. As she's a nurse. She's a superstar. How much does it help to have that kind of success? Because that would, I would think, obviously then bring more exposure and turn females into superstars. Yeah, again, when, when they're out in front of the media and, and people can see who they are and how they play and the amazing athletes and people that they are, um, that's a huge benefit. And you know, when I go around and I mention Kia's name, everyone knows who Kia hmm. Nurse is. And, uh, you know, a big part of that was being able to compete at home at the Pan Am Games in Toronto and, and being on TV. And then to follow that up with our FIBA qualifier, the Olympic qualifier uh, that August, and then to be on TV again uh, at the Rio Olympics. 
all of those have gigantic impacts on, um, again, the visibility and, and um, I guess, the, the name recognition and the face recognition of some of our amazing female athletes that we do have in this country. I know you have to go. You're at the, uh, you are out at the Nationals right now in BC. I think they have the, is the awards yeah. banquet tonight? It is. It's in about an hour. Okay. Well, we're going to let you go. But um, you, <laughs> unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm not sure which, uh, is, you're not going to be able to play Mac again this year. It didn't quite work out. You're, you're a Mac uh, grad. Were you wishing Mac had made it out there that you may have to play them? Oh, or are you going, oh, no, we don't want to play Mac. I don't want to run. I don't want to have to go through that. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, I was just devastated when, when they lost by one to Carlton. Uh, they've had an amazing season, and, and I really thought this, you know, I saw them play in October. I've seen them play on webcast. Um, they had a remarkable season. They had a number of fantastic players. Danielle Boyago, I'm a big fan of hers. And um, to see them come up just a little bit short and not get here was heartbreaking for me. Um, certainly, Teresa Burns and Rethos, great friends of mine. And uh, so always want them to do extremely well. Um, Have you had so to play them ever in a really meaningful, like a playoff game or something? Have you run into them yet? You know, we played them at Nationals when we hosted back in 2008, I want to say, first round, and uh, they beat us. And that's when they went on, uh, or they, I believe they finished third that yep, year. Yep, yep. Um, so, yeah, so that was probably the most meaningful game that that we've played against them, for sure, in the last number of years. Lisa Tomaitis, the head coach of Canada's Olympic and national basketball team, uh, the head coach of University of Saskatchewan that will be defending their championship, one of Canada's most influential sportswomen, and as I said in your introduction long before you came on the air tonight, member of Dundas's Sports Hall of Fame, which is way too often overlooked, Lisa. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's very cool. But thank you so much, Scott. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for coming on. No, appreciate it. And good luck this weekend with the tournament. Thank you very much. That is Lisa Tomitis. And, you know, to, to Lisa's point about all this, and, I, you know, it is International Women's Day. I wouldn't necessarily have talked about all this stuff with her when I talked to other things if it wasn't. But when she's talking about Kia Nurse and the fact that, and I've seen this, you walk into a gym and there are young girls and until more recently, in the last, I don't know how many years, there were not a ton. There were not. There were some, but there were not a ton of female athletes who were not only really good at their sport, but were celebrities because they had been able to break through and really get a lot of attention and get a lot of coverage. And when Kia Nurse walks into a gym and there are a bunch of young basketball players, I can t- it's unbelievable the look they get. And the other place... And there's lots of other places, but another example, anybody who's listening who was at Tim Horton's field two summers ago, I think it was in May, near the end of May, it was the pre-World Cup game between Canada and England for the Canadian, Canada was hosting the Women's World Cup of Soccer, and Tim Horton's field was sold out, and red shirts were everywhere, and all the shirts that people had on, or at least most of the red jerseys that people had on were on the back. They had the name of female players. You want to know something? This goes back to the night that Canada played the U.S. And you'll remember this at the London Olympics in 2012, that game turned those women on that Canadian Olympic soccer team into household names, which translated into that game in Hamilton into the World Cup. And I've been in Players Paradise out in Stony Creek, the soccer, indoor soccer dome, when Melissa Tancredi, same thing as Kia Nurse, she walks into onto the soccer pitch and there's all these young soccer players 
their eyes are enormous when they see Melissa Tancredi. I mean, someone who grew up in Ancaster, went to Cathedral, was one of us. I mean, is one of us. But because of the exposure, suddenly now, in more recent years, there are these people, there are these women who have now reached this level where they are not just good athletes or great athletes, they are celebrities. Lisa, go out to Saskatchewan. Lisa Tomitis is one of those people. And should be better known, quite frankly, around here. She is through the the Olympic team, but there are now, we are reaching the point where we have female athletic celebrities, and that is new. There have always been some. I mean, we had Chris Everett, we had Martina Navratilova. You go through, there's always been some. There are a lot more now in a lot more sports that a young woman, and I cited that that CNN story where 50% of girls by the time they're 14 have bailed out of sports. I don't know that this is what's going to keep them in it because I think the issues are more complicated. They have body image issues and other things that are involved. I don't know all of it. But I think if there are people out there that are celebrities that they can look up to, that may go a long way to encouraging some of them to keep playing sports. And it's not just about playing sports to be highly competitive or to be winning gold medals or whatever else. There's all kinds of health and other things that are involved as well. It's all very positive and, and, and again, good for Lisa uh, for making this list again, again, just to firmly establish her place in the Canadian sports pecking order. And as she mentioned, Therese Quigley, who for many years was the athletics director at McMaster. She was the one actually far enough back that she was the athletic director who hired Greg Marshall. Remember the Ticats head coach at one time who was at Mac before that? She was the one who hired Greg Marshall who turned around, really turned around the McMaster football program and got it to onto the plane, onto the level where it is today. Therese quickly was, she's now retired. She retired, I think, last year from Western, but is also on this list of women of influence in this country in sports. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.